It's Litopia Daily, the web's first daily bulletin about writing and publishing. And now, here's Peter Cox. Yes, it's Peter here, uh, starting off your writing week for you. Um, just about survived last Friday's Litopia After Dark, which, if you haven't heard yet, uh, do listen to. It's it's a complete riot. Uh, we'll be with you every day, of course, uh, Litopia Daily, culminating this Friday with another Litopia After Dark. And we, um, we're starting to plan that even now. It should be another good one. Now, here's Eve with Today in Writing History. It's the 7th of July today, and it's been 206 years since the very first comic was published. On the 7th of July, 1802, The Wasp, created by Robert Rusticot, was published in Hudson, New York. And despite hours of Googling, I can't find anything worth telling you about this publication, only that it was the first. I read an article in the London Free Press yesterday by Kevin Williamson entitled Hollywood Playing Superhero to Comics, which said that a decade ago the world was precariously close to eliminating its superheroes, that comics were going to disappear. But ta-da, they've been rescued from the brink of extinction by Hollywood. With advances in film technology and the high-concept comic book superhero, the desperate Hollywood execs have found a string of blockbusting titles to lure the previously jaded film-going audience. So with recent releases like Hancock starring Will Smith and Wanted starring Angelina Jolie, The Incredible Hulk and Iron Man all making wads of cash at the box office, and with an enormous list of forthcoming comic-to-screen releases on the horizon, we should be grateful to Robert Rusticoat and his wasp, the granddaddy of them all. That's it. More tomorrow. Thank you very much, Eve. Yet again, another fascinating glimpse into writing history. And now here's Donna to bring us up to date with the news. Thanks, Peter. Apparently, the rush of celebrities into publishing has spilled over to biographies, making professional biographers hopping mad. The Times of London reports that Catherine Hughes, a biographer whose book, The Short Life and Long Times of Mrs. Beaton, sold close to 30,000 copies, is upset that celebrity authors are devaluing the biographer's skill. The target of her ire is Amanda Foreman, who didn't help her cause of being taken seriously by posing naked behind a pile of books in Tatler magazine. Foreman, daughter of a Hollywood scriptwriter, used her doctoral thesis to write a book on Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire. It sold 206,000 copies, won a Whitbread Prize, and is about to be turned into a movie. Model Katie Price similarly sold 336,000 copies of her bio, Being Jordan, when a Whitbread winner about Matisse sold only 12,000 copies. Now middle-aged biographers are being told they're too old to have their pictures on the cover. I don't know why anyone is surprised by this trend. Celebs are cashing in on fame by writing all sorts of books. They've been writing kids' books for years, and I don't hear the biographers moaning. As a kids' writer, I hope celebrities find a new home in biography and stay away from my genre. Well, let's just have a look at this for a moment. I, I, don't, I don't mean Jordan. I mean Amanda Foreman and her biography of Georgiana Cavendish, Duchess of uh, Devonshire. Um, this came out some years ago. I think it was ninety-eight, ninety-nine. And it is surprising in a way to see it getting, you know, controversial coverage today. But when you um, check it out and see that a film is shortly coming, then you start to think to yourself, OK, well, hmm, it figures. It's all part of the, uh, the publicity campaign of the film, really. But this interests me. Let's just spend a moment 
considering why this biography worked. Not in terms of the writing, because I haven't read it, but in terms of the pitch itself. Well, to begin with, the subject is very glamorous. I mean, that was really how she rose to prominence in the 18th century. Um, she was very much her own woman. Um, she was a woman operating in, a, in a, an enormously male enclave, a woman in a man's world. And that story is always interesting, because it's very often a story of triumph through adversity. So it ticks another box for me. Um, she was satirised in Sheridan's School for Scandal. Thousands upon thousands of unlucky school children have had to study and perform that play at school. So, you know, you've automatically got lots of people out there uh, amongst your target market who have kind of heard of this character. Um, and that's another plus point. She had a very rocky marriage, which eventually turned into a menage à trois. Enormous potential there for good storytelling, lots and lots of drama. She was very politically active. She was a political campaigner, again, going against the grain. Um, she was a Whig supporter. Charles James Fox, I believe, was her cousin. Um, and she supported him. Fox was a huge opponent of George III and a proponent, a great supporter of um, the American revolutionaries. So, once again, you know, you've got lots of story potential there. Um, and if that weren't all enough... Um, she's related to the Spencers. So um, Lady Di is in the family. So it's a story about a woman in a man's world who's a direct relative to Lady Diana. Um, ticks the boxes for me. Stephen King in Entertainment Weekly tells us why Hollywood just can't make good horror movies. Why did the smaller film The Strangers work when bigger movies fell flat? Bigger movies spend too much money on special effects and not enough time on the intimate experience. Small films caress the viewer with a knife edge, where big ones blast our emotions. Plus, Hollywood is obsessed with the dread backstory, wanting to explain how the killer ended up that way and why the aliens felt they had to invade. Any Stephen King fans ought to read this article to find out which movies scare the master of horror. I'm adding them to my Netflix queue right now. Plagiarism, which is the bane of publishing today, isn't anything new. The Independent reports that Robert Graves, a British wartime poet, may have lifted his ideas from his mistress. Letters by Laura Riding Jackson, with whom Graves had an affair while still married to his first wife, show her accusing Graves of appropriating her manuscript, The Word Woman, which she thought he had destroyed when they fled Spain in 1936 during the Civil War. Instead, he dribbled her work into his own and she didn't find out until two decades later. Can anyone be really surprised that a cheater decided to cheat? Anyone who will cheat in one part of his life surely may be less than honest in other ways. Like the tale of the scorpion and the turtle, she knew what he was when she found him. And Robert Graves also is the latest and long and not particularly distinguished line of uh, writers and authors, male writers and authors, who've essentially nicked a lot of their stuff from their ladyfolk. Interesting book to be written about that. Vying with Graves for our Plagiarist of the Week are the authors of the New Testament. The New York Times reports that a stone tablet depicts the story of a Messiah who rises three days after death, decades before the birth of Jesus. Scholars are now debating whether Christian scripture was based on a much earlier Messiah story. Prophecy or plagiarism, inquiring minds want to know. 
Those are the top stories today, Peter. Links to these and other stories can be found in the Write Report. I hope all our listeners have a marvellous Writing Monday. Thank you very much, Donna. Me too. And do check uh, Donna's website, writereport.blogspot.com, for those links. And, of course, check our podcast website, podcast.litopia.com, for everything else. See you tomorrow. Catch Litopia Daily five days a week from www.litopia.com.